Hi, my name is Aisha Zengin and welcome back to another episode of Bone Group Banter. As always, we're here to discuss, debate and share all things musculoskeletal. Let's see what's making research news this week. Our first headline comes from Nature. Human cells reprogram to create insulin. Pancreatic cells that don't normally produce insulin can be modified to do so and to help control blood sugar levels in diabetic mice. The destruction of a single kind of insulin-producing cell in the pancreas can lead to diabetes, but a study suggests that other cells could be modified to take its place and help to control blood sugar levels. The results raise hopes that reprogrammed insulin-producing cells could be used as treatment for diabetes, but the approach has so far only been tested with human cells in mice studies. In a study published on 13th of February 2019 in Nature, so fresh off the press, ladies and gentlemen, researchers report coaxing human pancreatic cells that don't normally make insulin, a hormone that regulates the amount of glucose in the blood, to change their identity and begin producing the hormone. When implanted in mice, these reprogrammed cells relieved symptoms of diabetes, raising the possibility that the method could one day be used as a treatment in people. Now that's pretty exciting. Um, Our second headline comes from Science Mag. And I think you'll all like this headline. Reality check. Can cat poop cause mental illness? Scientists have long hypothesized that T. gondii plays a role in mental illness, including schizophrenia. But though more than 100 studies have found a correlation, none has shown that the parasite actually causes mental illness. So how do humans actually get infected? Well, T. gondii is not a bacterium or a virus, but a single-celled microscopic organism distantly related to the parasite that causes malaria. So cats get T. gondii, and the disease it causes is called toxoplasmosis. And this happens by the cats eating infected rodents, birds and other animals. Estimates suggest about 40% of cats in the United States are infected, but most don't show any symptoms. Um, But they can develop jaundice or blindness and experience personality changes if the parasite spreads to the liver or to the nervous system. In the first few weeks after infection, a cat can shed millions of hardy egg pods called oocysts into its litter box each day. Although some people get toxoplasmosis from direct contact with domestic cats and cat feces, many more are infected when oocysts shed by cats make it into the soil and water where they can survive for a year or even longer. Only about 11% of people are infected with T. gondii in America, though rates are much higher in regions where people eat more raw meat or sanitation is poor. For example, infection rates exceed 90% in some parts of Europe and South America. In healthy people, toxoplasmosis often causes a flu-like illness or no symptoms at all. But it can occasionally be dangerous or even fatal in those with weakened immune systems. Antibiotics can treat the infection, though drugs may not completely banish the parasite. Why do scientists 
think that to- toxoplasmosis could cause mental illness? Well, most of the evidence comes from rodents, which develop bizarre behaviours when infected with T. gondii. You see, they lose their fear of the smell of cat urine and in some cases walk right into the jaws of waiting felines. Scientists think T. gondii alters brain function by forming cysts in regions that process fear and decision making. The cysts may also affect behaviour by ramping up levels of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter involved in reward and risk taking. There's some evidence that T. gondii can rewire the brain permanently, making mice unafraid of cats even long after the parasite has been cleared. Now that article was a fairly long one, so it seems quite interesting. If you'd like to read more, I'd suggest you go and check out Science Mag's website. So turning to today's episode, I'll be talking about the changes in bone mineral density in patients with cystic fibrosis. So first up, what is cystic fibrosis? Cystic fibrosis, or CF, is a common life-limiting autosomal recessive genetic disorder, meaning that it occurs equally in males and females. The CF gene must be inherited from both parents, and it can skip generations. The highest prevalence of CF is in Europe, North America, and Australia. Seeing as though we're broadcasting from Australia, I thought I'd give you a bit of specifics from from Australia. So, in Australia, 1 in 2,500 babies are born with CF. So that's basically 1 every 4 days. On average, 1 in 25 people carry the CF gene, and most are unaware that they are carriers. Because carriers of CF are unaffected and therefore show no symptoms, it's hard for them to appreciate that CF may be a real risk. Now this one's for you Tassie people. So in Tasmania, 1 in 20 people carry the CF gene. Now this is fairly high as it's the second highest rate in the world behind Ireland. So just to give you a bit more detail about CF, um, well, the disease is caused by a mutation of a gene that encodes a chloride-conducting transmembrane channel called the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator. Wow, that's a mouthful. So let's just call that CFTR, hey? And this um, uh, CFTR regulates anion transport and mucociliary clearance in the airways. Basically, it gets rid of all the mucus in the airways. So functional failure of the CFTR results in mucus retention and chronic infection, and subsequently in local airway inflammation that is harmful to the lungs. CFTR dysfunction mainly affects epithelial cells, which are a type of cell that lines the surface of your body. So how is it even diagnosed, you may be asking? Well, since 1986, all newborns have been subject to a heel prick test. This test is used to screen for a number of conditions, one of which is an indicator of cystic fibrosis. Diagnosis may also result after a baby is born with obvious CF symptoms, such as bowel blockage or failure to thrive, meaning to grow. Um, The heel prick test does not detect everyone uh, and the definitive test for CF 
um, is actually the sweat test as high levels of salt in perspiration, so in your sweat, is extremely common amongst those with CF. How is cystic fibrosis treated? Well, management and treatment of CF is lifelong, ongoing and relentless. A person with CF may consume up to 60 tablets per day just to help digest food and may need to do up to four hours of airway clearance physiotherapy each day. It's important for people with CF to visit a cystic fibrosis treatment center several times each year so their progress can be monitored. So the treatment generally involves intensive daily physiotherapy, like we just said, to clear the lungs, enzyme replacement capsules with food to aid digestion, antibiotic therapy to treat lung infections, aerosol mist inhalations via a nebulizer to help open the airways, a nutritious diet that's also high calorie, high salt and high fat, and exercise, which is important to um, help clear the airways and build core strength in terms of maintaining muscle mass. Now, people with CF aren't encouraged to socialize socialize with each other. The risk of cross-infection and exacerbation of lung conditions is too great. That means that CF can be a lonely existence in the respect that people with CF can personally interact to share experiences and offer support. So, taking all this, how is CF, if it's something to do with the lungs and the airways, how is that related to bone? Well, the remarkable progress that has been achieved by improving airway mucus clearance and controlling lung infection has changed cystic fibrosis from from being from being predominantly a disease of children to now being um, predominantly an an adult disorder. With this increased longevity, a number of new problems have emerged, including low bone mineral density, osteoporotic fractures, and kyphosis which is um, abnormally excessive convex curvature of the spine. Vertebral and rib fractures and kyphosis can further compromise lung function with pain, interfering with airway clearance and reducing physical activity. So let's um, let's take a look at some of the research that's been done in recent years. There isn't much out there, but... Um, as I just said, because it's um, because CF patients are now living longer and they're living to adulthood, there's these other problems. So the first study that was published on the bones of CF patients using high-resolution bone scanners was by Melissa Putman and colleagues in 2014 from the US. So this study was in 30 young adults with CF who were aged between 18 to 40 40 years of age and compared to a control group consisting of about 60 healthy volunteers that was um, matched by age, sex and ethnicity who were all Caucasians. This study found that at the radius, which is one of the bones in the arm, and the tibia, which is found in the lower leg, young adults with CF had smaller bone size and lower bone mineral density. Cortical, if you remember, this is the bone that's on the outer surface, the more concrete-like, and trabecular is the more spongy-like bone on the inside in the long bones and found in the ribs and in the vertebra. So cortical and trabecular microarchitecture were compromised at both the radius and the tibia, most notably involving the trabecular bone of the tibia. 
these differences translated into lower bone strength, both at the radius and tibia. After accounting for body mass index differences, as CF patients have um, lower body weight and are shorter as well, young adults with CF had lower bone area and bone strength at the radius and had compromised trabecular microarchitecture and lower total and trabecular bone mineral density at the tibia. So basically they have compromised bone health, we could just say in general, just to keep it simple. So the same group of researchers also published another study in 2017 to look at the individual trabecular bone. You see, bone imaging has involved so much now that you can get very useful information about the individual trabeculae. Think of it as individual hexagons in a honeycomb. So all the little honeycombs, they make up the actual honeycomb, but each individual has an important um, role to play in the overall strength, right? So this new technique is called individual trabecular segmentation and gives information on the orientation, connectivity, and plate and rod-like structures of an individual trabeculae. So plates are mostly oriented longitudinally, parallel to the local loads they carry, while rods support the plates from buckling and are mostly oriented along the transverse direction. They showed, like this group of researchers showed, that patients with CF had fewer, thinner, and less connected trabecular plates and altered alignment of trabecula, whereas the rod-like trabecula was preserved. So think of it like this. The plate-like trabeculae, um, they're generally more, um, they're more stronger because they cover more surface area. So in the CF patients, um, these, these researchers show that the plate-like um, structures were... Because these plate-like qualities had the strongest correlation with bone strength estimates, alterations in trabecular plates may help explain the tendency for CF patients to fracture trabecular-rich bones. And these include things like the ribs and the vertebra. So that's all we have time for today. Um, in summary, we've covered what cystic fibrosis is and um, how the bones in these patients are compromised and it's why it's important that these um, patients are screened for osteoporosis even though they aren't at the classic age when you know bone deterioration generally happens. Um, that's all we have time for today. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and get in touch via Twitter or email if you have any questions. Thanks for your time and see you next week.